Welcome to Christ Church. Um, thank you for inviting me to be here with you. I know this idea of infectious love has really challenged and impacted me this week. Uh, and it's been a very humbling topic to be studying as I realize just how short I fall. Um, and I hope some of my thoughts on it will resonate with you as well. Let's open our time with some prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that Christ Church would be a place that would be known for its extreme and radical love. Lord, a place with, with a love that's so honest, that's so true, that it's infectious in our communities. A love that forces others to ask the question, what do they have that I don't? And a love that points your people back to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Growing up as a little boy, I was always very guilt-ridden. I had a very heavy conscience, and I just could not rest if I had known that I had done something wrong. In fact, my parents like to tell the story about when I was four or five, and this would happen almost every night, but I would go up to bed and they would tuck me in, kiss me on the forehead, say their prayers, and then as they exited the room, they'd turn the lights off and say, Pete, it's time to actually go to bed now. And just like any other four or five-year-old boy, I'd flip on my flashlight the second they had left, and I'd start playing with my action figures and reading my Calvin and Hobbes books. But unlike most four or five-year-old boys, about 30 minutes into doing that, I suddenly felt a wave of anxiety and guilt come over me as I realized that I had disobeyed. I had been a bad boy. And so I'd jump out of my bed quickly and I'd run downstairs and I'd enter into the living room and I'd confess my sin to my parents. And my parents, trying to hold back their laughter and their smirks, would say, now Pete, we'll deal with this in the morning, right? And I'd run back upstairs, able to rest, knowing that surely the punishment had to be better than sitting with my guilt. I also had a conscience for those that were in need. My mom tells the story often of how embarrassed she was when, as a six-year-old boy, I was standing in line behind somebody at the grocery store that was buying cigarettes, and I tapped them on the arm, and I said, Excuse me, sir, did you know that those can kill you? <laughs> and my mom quickly pulled me away and acted like we had to go get another item from the grocery store. Or there's a time when I was six or seven years old and my dad was showing a video and telling us about children around the world that actually didn't have toys. I was aghast being a little boy that very much loved my own toys. I couldn't imagine a world without them. And so I ran out of the room and my dad yelled after me, Pete, we're not done. Come back. And I came running back downstairs with my piggy bank and I emptied it out on the table. And I said, dad, go buy some toys for those little boys. That conscience continued to ache as I grew up for, for those that had not heard the gospel, for those that had not heard about my Savior Jesus that came into this world and saved us from our sins. And, and I remember I was very guilt-ridden by this. And I felt like I needed to do something. I wasn't doing my part. I wasn't bringing others to know the truth that I had had. And so that led me to seek out online forums where people were asking questions and answering them as best as I could. 
Anytime I was sitting next to somebody or had a captive audience, I would begin telling them about my faith, which, let me tell you, led to some very uncomfortable plane rides back and forth from college. I dreaded getting onto the plane because I knew that this meant that I was going to have to, you know, face my fears and share, and I'm sure the person next to me dreaded when I opened my mouth. Oh no, here we go. So, but I found myself not feeling any better. I still had the same guilt. I still felt like I, I hadn't reached anyone. For some reason, And so my mentor kind of took me aside and he said, Pete, let's get lunch. I want to I tell you about a guy named St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis of Assisi is one of our church fathers. And he has a very famous quote, which I'm sure many of you have heard, but I hadn't heard it at the time. It says, preach the gospel at all times. And my heart sunk. And I was like, this is exactly what I thought this would be about. But then it said, and when necessary, use words. You see, this statement is an incredibly eloquent way to put in perspective how evangelism works. It's a challenge to how we live our lives. It calls us to something higher. But to me at that time, it was a complete relief. It was a total cop-out because how I read it and how I still read it oftentimes is live your life, be a good person, and hopefully other people will see that and want more. You see, the problem is, is that the foundation of this quote is that our lives are actually an accurate reflection of Christ's gospel. And unfortunately, I don't think my life is, and I don't think it really ever has been. You see, I'm a nice guy. I try to do good things. I try to say the right things. I avoid doing bad things. I live out the gospel of the nice guy. But unfortunately for me, there's, there's nowhere in this book that talks about that gospel. There's no one in this book that says the gospel is to do good things and to say good things. And so the question becomes, if we are going to have this infectious faith, this faith that is contagious to our neighbors, what do we do? And fortunately for us, We're not the first people asking this question. Let's open up into Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 28. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Or Jesus, what should I do to embrace the gospel? Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? See, Jesus recognized this is a a religious scholar. He's probably memorized the first five books of the Bible, if not much more. And he should be able to answer this question himself. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. At first glance, this seems pretty easy. I've got two neighbors and one God, so I've got to love three people, right? It seems like the gospel of the nice guy. And I think the religious leader is thinking the same thing, and so, unfortunately for us, he decides to clarify. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
And this sets a platform for Jesus to start to talk about this extreme gospel that he has brought into this world. So Jesus starts off with a story, a story that would be familiar for the people that he was talking to, but a story that oftentimes I struggle to understand how it fits in my own life. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. So a Jewish man is walking down the street, Bandits come out of nowhere, they attack him, they beat him, they steal his possessions, and they leave him there for dead. So Jesus has set the platform. He showed us, here is the injustice that that we're going to respond to. And then he talks about the responses of those that might help out. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Now, surely, if anyone was going to stop and help someone in need, it's a pastor, right? This man has dedicated his entire life to knowing God's word, to preaching and teaching it, and to living and doing good things. Yet, for some reason, he crosses to the other side of the road. He doesn't even slow down. And he blows past this man that's in need. And it's really easy when reading this scripture to to judge this priest. To say that he doesn't get it, he doesn't understand. But let's take for a second a moment to think about this road that this man is walking down. This road is um, a very common road. It connects two major cities, Jerusalem and Jericho. It would be one that many of the people Jesus was talking to had traveled before. And it was a road that was notorious for its violent acts. In fact, Oftentimes, to travel this road by yourself was to commit suicide. This man laying on the side of the road had it coming. He knew the dangers, he knew the harm, but still he traveled alone. And sure enough, bandits came out of these cliffs and they took him down. But not only that, it was fairly common for the bandits to attack one person and leave him there, half dead, hoping that someone else would stop so that they could attack that person when they were most vulnerable. Sometimes they didn't even go that far and they would just themselves lay on the side of the road and pretend to be hurt. And then when someone would bend over, they would attack them and steal their possessions. You see, to help this man laying on the road meant that you were certainly putting yourself in harm's way. Maybe an easier way for us to understand this is to think about driving into one of the toughest neighborhoods in Chicago. A neighborhood notorious for criminal activity, notorious for the gangs that live there. And it's starting to get dark and we're driving alone in our car and we see a junkie on the side of the road that's either passed out from a high or been beaten up and had, had his stuff stolen from him. And we see him lying there on the curb. And I ask myself, would I pull over and stop, bend down, help this man, maybe even have to put him in my car, take him to a hospital? And I'd like to say that I would, but... I think that maybe the fear might set in and I would find it difficult to put myself in that vulnerable position. So before we jump to any conclusions and judge this priest, remember that this is a much tougher scenario than you and I might encounter. Yet Jesus indicates that the gospel is not in this man. 
Then a temple assistant walked over and looked at him, lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. A Levite, a man that has dedicated his, his spare time to serving in the temple, a man that goes to church, that does his sacrifices, that helps the poor. He probably volunteers with KidZone. He goes to the hunger pack. He's a good guy. He even sees the man and he bends over to see how he's doing. And he probably has pity for him and wishes he could do something, but he recognizes that the risk is too great. And again, Jesus indicates that the gospel is not in this man. So the story takes a turn. Then a despised Samaritan came along. When Jesus says this, I am sure his listeners are thinking, oh great, here comes another criminal to finish the job, right? Jesus himself, just verses before, had sent his disciples before him to a Samaritan town, asking if he could come in and heal and preach to these people, and they turned Jesus away and told him that he had no place there. So even Jesus has experienced this tension. You see, the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. And Samaritan is a term both used for racial connotations, but also religious connotations. On the racial side, we're pretty familiar with this. They were a people of of a different skin color. People of a different nationality that had different religious traditions, that did different cultural activities, and they just rubbed the wrong way with the Jews. But famous theologian William Barclay says they also were defined by religious Samaritans who were Jews that just didn't do a very good job of being a Jew. They didn't go to the temple. They didn't do their sacrifices. They didn't say the right things. They were probably caught up in unsavory activities. So either way, as Jesus talks about the Samaritan, the listeners have negative connotations. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. He took time. He bent down on this road. That's no quick task. Then he put the man on his own donkey. So this man's only safety is the fact that he's riding an animal that he can escape danger from. But he puts the man on his own donkey and slows himself down and puts himself in a vulnerable spot. And took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I am here. So remember, if this man is walking down this notorious road, a place called the bloody road, he is obviously getting to something important. You don't put yourself in harm's way for nothing. So the Samaritan is obviously going towards some important activity, maybe something that happened in his family, something that's urgent for business. And he takes the time to push it to the side to care for this man that he doesn't know. And in other circumstances, a man that might spit at him. And Jesus indicates that the gospel is in this man. In fact, he asked, now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed his showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. You see, Jesus recognizes that this Samaritan, this man that probably doesn't do the right thing, probably doesn't say the right thing. 
lives out this radical love. Embraces the man on the side of the road, even though it means great risk for him. The famous civil rights leader, Martin Luther King, puts it this way in a sermon that he did about the Good Samaritan. So the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by and reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? How often when I see injustice in this world, I respond the way of the Levite, the way of the priest. I ask myself, what inconvenience or harm will this put me at risk of? And I weigh the pros and cons, and only if it seems to come out in my favor do I lend a hand. But you see, I think this story is particularly difficult for us to relate with. Because if we're going to be entirely honest... It's a rare occasion that we have seen someone beaten and bloody and hurt laying on the road. And we would like to assume that if that was the case, we would do something about it. If I came home this afternoon and noticed that my neighbor had slipped on the ice and fallen down the stairs, surely I would not just go into my home. I would run over and help that person. And so it's easy for us to pat ourselves on the back. But you see, I don't think Jesus was addressing these people on how Christians should respond to violent acts. But rather, how Christians should respond to whatever injustice is most common to them. Again, like I said, this this road connected these two major cities. It was a road that all of these people had traveled before. And again, if it's known as the bloody road, that means likely many of these men and women had walked past people that were beaten on the side of the road, recognizing that to stop and help them put them in too great of harm. You see, this was a much more personal challenge for these people because they had likely seen that injustice and walked by. It's a passage that I'm sure Martin Luther King related with maybe better than we do. This past week, I saw the movie Selma, and I would encourage us all to see that as we remember the life of this great man. But in this movie, they talk about, or Martin Luther King leads a march of people From Selma to Birmingham, Alabama, 50 miles in a peaceful protest. And just blocks after leaving Selma, they cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And as they look down the other side of the bridge, they see a mob of angry police officers ready for war. And the police officers rush up at them and begin to beat them into the curves with their nightsticks. You see, this was a very familiar injustice for Martin Luther King. One in which he related because he had put himself in harm's way to help the least of these. He had stepped up to fight for injustice, even though surely it meant that he would be beaten. I think Jesus is asking us the question, what robbery is right before you? The book and later the movie Kite Runner is a story of these two Afghan boys and their father. And at one particular time, their father offers them a little bit of wisdom. 
And he says, there is only one sin, only one, and that is theft. Every other sin is a variation of theft. When you kill a man, you steal a life. You steal his wife's right to a husband, rob his children of a father. When you tell a lie, you steal someone's right to the truth. When you cheat, you steal the right to fairness. On that road, that Jewish man was robbed of his possessions. On the Edmund Pettus Bridge, those men and women were robbed of their rights as well-meaning Christians, just like you and I, sat and watched on their televisions and wished there was something they could do about it. Who is the man laying on the side of the road that we walk past, that we ignore? What is the injustice that is prevalent in our own societies? Little girls around the world are robbed of their innocence as they're enslaved and forced into prostitution. Yet I think to myself, that's too messy. That's too hard. I don't have the skill set to do anything about that. I walk past the homeless in Chicago and I rob them of their dignity and their identity as Christ's image bearers by thinking that if I lend them a hand, surely they will use what I give them to purchase more drugs and more alcohol. Children are robbed of their lives daily from preventable diseases in their unclean water. And I sit thinking, I wish there was someone that had more money than I did that cared about this as much as I did. When the reality is, if we're looking at global statistics, I find myself in the 90th percent of wealth. And I know better than most that for only $50, what I paid on dinner last night with my wife, I could bring life to a child and provide him with clean water. Thousands of families are robbed of their right to live in a place where their children can flourish because they were born on the southern side of an imaginary line. And I think to myself, they don't pay the taxes that I do. They weren't born here. They have no right to my jobs. Yet halfway across the world, in war-torn Syria, millions are fleeing for their lives. And the country that has opened its doors to them is Lebanon, a population of 4 million, predominantly Muslim, has invited 1 million refugees to be assimilated into their culture, their schools, their jobs, to give them their shelter and their food. Think about that. A quarter of their population welcomed in without question. Yet we, with unlimited resources, a country founded on Christian values, turns the other way. Thousands of men and women are robbed of their freedom through the violent acts of those in their very own home. Domestic violence is tearing apart the families of this nation. And oftentimes I find myself sitting there excusing the perpetrators and even glorifying them because what they do on Sunday afternoons. Still to this day, 
men and women are robbed of equal opportunities because of the color of their skin. And I pretend that that's not true. And then I think even if it is, there's nothing else we as a country can do. The point I'm trying to make is that I am on that road. I am staring into the eyes of the man that has been beaten and left for dead. And I'm asking the question, what discomfort, what inconvenience, and what harm will befall me if I help this man out? That is not the gospel. And I'm ashamed to say that it is likely that four-year-old me understood the gospel at a much higher level than I do now as a pastor. St. Francis calls us to a radical life, an extreme life, one that reflects the gospel, one that is infectious, that when people see us, they say, something is different about that man, that woman, that child, and I want that. If we're serious about witnessing and bringing other people to know our Savior, then we need to be serious about responding to the injustice that lies before us. So let's ask ourselves two questions. The first is, who is the man laying at our feet? What injustice does our heart ache for? What injustice saddens us? What robbery has God made us passionate about? I listed a few, but there are many more. It could be the kid in our school that gets picked on each day, and we know that to help him out means that we're going to start getting picked on. But we do it anyway. It could be the family that just moved into our neighborhood. They made it. They finally got their dream home, but now they are crushed by depression and loneliness because even though they're surrounded by more nice people than they have ever been, they have no friends. We need to evaluate for ourselves what is the injustice that lies before us. And once we have done that, we need to ask ourselves, what harm will befall this man if I do nothing? And dedicate our lives to answering that question. It's not going to be a one-time service project. It's not going to be a one-time gift. It's going to require us to get down on our knees. It's going to require us to get dirty. But if we do that, if we understand that, Christ's love will explode in our communities. I want to leave us with one quote from Martin Luther King. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's hill, three men were crucified. And we must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world 
are in dire need of creative extremists. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would be extremists for your gospel. Lord, that your love would be in us in a way that is contagious to those around us. Lord, that we would not be afraid to bend down, put ourselves in a vulnerable place. Knowing that it's only then that others get an accurate reflection of who you are. Lord, I pray that we leave this place loving radically. In your name, amen.